that biome has evolved in that location over thousands of years to be the biome that works the best in that location. So it's important to enhance that natural microbiome in that location in order to get the maximum impact on the crop that you want to grow. So what we are doing is we are feeding that biome and we're allowing that biome to decide which are going to be the winners or the losers in that biome without outside interference. Hey now, this is Dan Aberhart, and I am the host of this episode of the Growing the Future podcast. My business partner and little brother and I, Terry, we started this show to bring you the incredible conversations we're fortunate enough to have with the amazing folks in our network. These episodes will elevate your mindset, They'll motivate you, they'll inspire you and inform you in such a way that you can be successful going forward in the agricultural space. So let's get growing our future together. Hey now, it is Dan Eberhardt here. I am the host of uh, this episode of Growing the Future podcast. We're officially on season three, episode 13. Before we get into our content with our most awesome guest today, uh, please check out our socials and give us a follow on YouTube and check out growingthefuturepodcast.ca and you can sign up there to get emails when we have a new episode come out. Our guest today is from Vancouver, British Columbia, but originally grew up in Saskatchewan and was exposed to the agricultural culture there and he's excited to be coming back now and applying many of the things that he learned out in the bigger, broader world to how to solve some of the world's problems, which I believe agriculture can be at the center of. It's a very exciting space. He is the chief product officer and senior bio-geoscientist of Lucent Biosciences. And I'm proud that I could actually get through that sentence as a tongue twister, if you will. Lucent Biosciences, they're an ag tech company, a true startup. Their proprietary technology essentially binds micronutrients to, to cellulose food waste. You corrected me on that. It's not food waste. It's, it's a co-product, okay? But you're combining two things to make uh, something more than the sum of its ingredients because this is a new wave, a new frontier of fertility that we're very proud to be a part of as well. And we actually had the honor to be working together a little bit. This is a new area of fertility that really is the future well, I won't throw out all those keywords out there. I'm sure in the course of this podcast, they'll all get thrown out there in, in enough time. But I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about. It's essentially regenerative ag where you're improving the soil health and solving a bunch of other people's problems, urban folk and everybody that's concerned about the environment, but also it's the profitability of the farmer. So soilios is made from natural ingredients. And of course, it's got the same goals that farmers always have. Increased yield, it's got to be economical. But man, we were just discussing before the show here, this space is crazy. Pivot Bio nearing $2 billion valuation as they raise whopping $430 million to replace synthetic fertilizers. Can we be in any more sexy space? It's got to work though. And, and we'll talk about how they're achieving some really good results across the prairies. Take us a little bit of your background where you started out in Saskatchewan. You had some exposure to agricultural culture, but you went out uh, west and you learned a bunch of stuff. You're bringing this back home now. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you got to where you are now. Man, thanks, Dan. It was quite a journey. It started with the great Saskatchewan education system through uh, the Athel Murray College of Notre Dame, just south of good old Regina and the University of Regina, where I, I, I spent a little bit longer than maybe I should have. But, and I did, I did start heading west and did all kinds of interesting work from uh, geotechnical, environmental type consulting to deep sea research 
And in fact, I spent a lot of time in deep sea research, running another startup company in that field. And some of the things that I learned in that company are things that we have translated into and turned into the intellectual property and the core of the company that we have now. What is it that you guys are doing here? Just to frame the context for our listener, what is it that you guys have come up with here? Well, it's just a great question. I mean, obviously that's, that's why I'm here. What we have done is we have developed an entirely new composition of matter, which sounds really interesting. And it, and it actually is really interesting. What we did is we found a way to deliver micronutrients to the microbiome in such a way that they don't tie up, they don't leach, they're actually effective, and they're delivered to the plant from the microbiome in a timely manner, which allows that plant to really optimize its genetic potential. Wow. So why would I care about this as a farmer over synthetic traditional fertilizers, if you will? I think you would want to see what the results are in terms of your yield. I mean, really, that's why you would care, I think, from a financial standpoint. But from a soil health and a longevity of your soil and what your next crop is going to be, it's also important because we're not using traditional delivery mechanism because traditional delivery mechanisms are based on salts of some sort, whether it's a sulfate or a chloride or whatever it is. And we know intellectually, we all know that um, adding salt to soil is bad. And, but we don't often think about why it's bad. And the reason that uh, salt impacts, has that negative impact on your soil is it negatively impacts your soil microbes and your microbiome. And it's that microbes, it's those microbes that have a symbiotic relationship with the crop that you're trying to grow. It's not that your, your microbes or your soil is only feeding your crop, but it's also the reverse actually happens. That crop is also feeding your soil microbiome. So the healthier your microbiome is, the better the opportunity that you have to maximize the genetic potential in those lovely seeds that you bought at the start of the season. Can you give us a little bit of a context on the production of synthetic fertilizers? Why are these so high in salt? What is about that production that creates this situation that might be less than desirable for the microbes in the soil long term? Well, I think you kind of got to take a step back, first of all, and you have to say, thank you, synthetic fertilizers, because that's why you and I are here, right? right. I mean, if it wasn't for the Haverbush process and other salt-type fertilizers, the amount of production that could, would be possible with the arable land that we have would be substantially lower, and the human population would be substantially lower than it is today. So I'm glad for that opportunity. But the long-term detrimental impact of the salts in your soil is that it selects preferentially, like from an evolutionary perspective, it selects which microbes you have and which ones you don't, which limits the, the potential, the genetic potential of the crops that, that, you're putting, that you're putting in. So what you want is you want to have the maximum ecological functioning of your soil microbiome in order to unlock the maximum genetic potential of the crops that you're growing. It's a fascinating topic. When I grew up on the farm, we didn't even know there was 
life in the soil as such. We just sort of put fertilizer on and put the seed in the ground and it came up and it's just all a function of who knows what, I guess. We didn't think about it a whole lot. It's just dirt and grew the, grew the plants. But now we know there's a wild ecosystem in that soil with trillions of, of speed, like little beings working away in some capacity. What, what does that look like? What's our understanding of that? Well, it's weak. <laughs> it's 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 right. it's, it, it, it's not great. But if I could just step back just a little bit, and, and I'll answer your question. But I think when we think of synthetic fertilizers, and again, they've done amazingly good things for humans and the planet, and also some not so good things. But they, as I said, they they limit the ecological function of your soil. But what we had sort of been trying to do up until the last, say, 20 years is we've been trying to solve a biochemical issue with chemicals, with the chemistry part, right? But I think there's become more and more of an understanding now as the science gets better and we start understanding who's who in the, in the microbiome and how that microbiome feeds the plant and the plant feeds that microbiome. Now we're looking at it more as a biochemistry issue. And by simply applying chemistry, i.e. Like, like nitrogen in a salt form or, or phosphorus in a salt form or that sort of thing, we know that that's not optimal. So we're still learning through some great genetic tools that are out there. And there's a lot of companies that are starting to work on it, like A&L Labs, Trace Genomics, and those guys. We're trying to seeing the change in species diversity and abundance during the growing season and which ones are more important to deliver which nutrients at which times and also which ones are most positively impacted by the inputs that the grower is putting in. There's more and more concern about this biome and soil health beyond all the, the fancy monikers that we've come to know and love, like sustainability and circular economy and soil health and all that. I mean, they're ab- rather obtuse statements. What is actually going on in the soil that's beneficial to producers long-term that, that we need to learn to foster, to, to encourage? One of the ways I, I like to think about it, Dan, is, is sort of the evolution of your soil and the soil microbiome and the plants and how they interact. And you can say chicken or egg, which came first in a lot of cases, but in soil, it's not chicken or egg. There was a microbiome first before there was ever vascular plants. Hmm. And that microbiome existed based from, which, which migrated from the ocean because that's where all life on earth comes from and sort of migrated into the land, but it needed energy. There, where it used to get all this energy from the sun, there was no sun under the ground. And of course the microbes couldn't survive in the sunshine. So over billions to trillions of generations, they kept trying to send guys up to find a way to harvest that sunlight to bring some energy back down into that ecosystem. And that's the start of vascular plants. And so when you think about it from that perspective, the vascular plants or the crops that we're growing, the evolutionary purpose of those plants is to feed the microbiome. So we need to take care of our microbiome so it can optimally then feed the vascular plants, which are our crops that we're growing. So we can't think of them separately. They're intertwined. I did not know that was part of the world's history. (laughs) That actually makes a lot of sense. So in a way, plants are an extension of this microbiome really to serve the purposes of like who who's serving who here well and, <laughs> who's in and, and humans and humans 
by that same extension. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we eat the animals that eat the plants that are serving the microbiome. And that's the way the world rolls, I guess. Think about it <laughs> even further. You know, we have our own microbiome. All the other animals have their own microbiome. The, the, the trees, the plants, your field of wheat has its own microbiome. It's, it's not limited to just the soil. We live in this massive ecological community of which we are a very small part. Well, I love that you said that because yesterday or Sunday, I ordered a biome kit that's going to, I think I got to poop in a box. I think that's going to be the big, <laughs> big highlight of my yeah. day that yeah. day. No, no, that's poop, true. Poop in a box. Yeah. Poop in a box and send it off and then they'll tell me what's all going on in my biome and what I should be eating and not eating and, and this and that. And I think it's absolutely fascinating that we're more bacteria than we are human. Absolutely. More of them than there are of us. So we're essentially, again, are we just an extension of these microorganisms or what is what is going on? But our understanding is of it is dim, like you say at best, but I think of I think of the soil in a way, like it's hard for us to know how the soil is feeling. But for us, we know how we're feeling. And the biome is is related to depression, anxiety, feelings of well-being, like our metabolic health, the mitochondria and all that. What kind of parallel is there between like our biome and the soil biome? How closely is this related or is this different galaxies? That's a question for someone more expert at that than I. But mm. I think if we understand the evolution of plants and animals on land and understand that that those mic that microbiome is in our system that it is that microbiome which feeds us it's that microbiome in our gut that 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 changes the state of the materials that we ingest as food right. and turns them into energy and other useful products that our body then can use and if we look at that and we say okay that's what the function of the microbiome is in our gut let's take a look at the soil it must play a similar role in that mm -hmm. way, in that the health of the, the soil microbiome dictates what the genetic potential is of the plants that are growing in that environment. These new tools have to work just as good or better. I think part of the challenge is these chemical solutions have worked so well. Like we know synthetic fertility works 100%. Like nitrogen, direct correlation to results. Oh, yeah. Spray a weed with traditional chemical, it's 99.999% dead. These other solutions that we're starting to dabble in are a lot more complicated. But how do we get, how are you getting the biology working in your favor to achieve the goals to produce results for the farm? I like the way you said that, actually, uh, because I, I, I don't like that people demonize the current suite of, of op options that we have for inputs because they really have got us to where we are. But can we get better? Can we evolve and make better products that not only improve our yield, but also decrease the cost of our inputs and improve our soil health? Well, of course we can. And, and I think there's a lot of good examples of that already. Like one is just the practice of no-till, where that has really improved the soil carbon in particularly Western Canada, but in, all part, in lots of parts of the world. And that in turn, that soil carbon is part of, the, part of what feeds the biome. So our secret sauce, what we do is we take fiber, cellulose fiber, which we get from the food processing industry. In this case, it's AGT Foods out of Regina, who are fantastic partners. We take their fiber, which is, in, in their case, is a low-value co-product of the food processing. And we take that fiber and we 
through our method, our proprietary method, we attach the micronutrients in a way that is strong enough that they don't leach due to water, to uh, soil water, but they are not, that they're attached loose enough that they, they microbes and plants can actually extract the nutrients from them. Hmm. So you're actually putting the microbes to work to release the micronutrients attached to this co-product like these. We're actually feeding them. We're feeding them the product is the way that it works. So microbes primarily are looking for a food source. And so we feed them this carbon source. And in while they, they eat this carbon source, and that improves, of course, the diversity and abundance of the, of the microbes, and at the same time, they must eat the nutrients because we've attached them on there tight enough that they have, to, they have to eat those as well. And then they have a short lifespan. When they move on, they release an entire suite of biologically available elements from nitrogen to zinc or iron or manganese, the sort of products that we have. And when you think about it, there's very low soil activity when the soil is cold there's very low soil activity when the soil is dry. So when it's moist and warm, that's when all the activity is happening. And that's also when our product is being used up and feeding the plants that you're trying to grow. So in other words, it's delivered on time. It's delivered on time as the ecosystem is growing at the same time that your plant needs the nutrients. And what kind of package are you guys delivering this into the, to the farm? Good question. Right now for broadacre crops, we're mostly, we've developed a pelletized solution, which the reason for that is biomass pellets much better than it granulates. So our pellets are relatively the same size as a typical granule. And mm-hmm. we've been running trials this year from like 20 to 40 acre trials from Ohio to Alberta on corn, lentils, soybeans, canola, and wheat. And we've been running it through air, primarily through air seeders and the product flows nice, doesn't break up. So it's just a, it's a pellet right now for that broad acre application. We're also working on another technology whereby we can coat seeds with them. So you have your early season fertility, like right there, right where the, where the crop needs it to mm-hmm. help with early season germination and health. And we're also working on a, another product whereby we can coat NPK granules with the material so we get a, a better distribution. Mm. Well, that sounds cool, man. How did you first have that eureka moment? Like, how did this all get started? How did you figure out how to bind this stuff to this co-product? Again, it goes back to the deep sea research in the ocean in particular in the deep ocean, which is 99% of the ocean is four kilometers deep and you can't see land, which is honestly what Earth mostly looks like. It's just water and nothing else. And until you've been out there for a few weeks, it's hard to, it's hard to really fathom, but it's, it's really an interesting <laughs> place to be. It's probably how big city folk feel about the prairies. Well, I, you know what? It, it probably is very similar. You're not far off there. But in the deep ocean, there's an abundance of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium because they're water soluble. And, but despite that abundance, there's not a huge amount of plankton out in these areas. And the reason is there are not the micronutrients or or there's a lack of the micronutrients that those plants need to photosynthesize and, and other reactions that are important in cellular health. 
And we know this because it's been measured many, many times. And we see when you add micronutrients to the deep ocean, you get massive plankton blooms that usually at the same time will coincide with great returns of fish or huge populations of fish. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were talking about the initial original source of MPK, which was the guano cliffs in South America, which is simply, there's a massive fishery. It's the world's largest fishery off of Chile and Peru in the Humboldt current system there. And the reason there's a massive fishery is there because they have a great steady, consistent plankton blooms. And the reason they have that is because the Antarctic current slams into the south end of Chile and it, and it, and it rides its way up that east coast. And in so doing, it pushes up the water from the bottom. And that water from the bottom has the micronutrients in it, which you need for the photosynthesis. That is why those birds for hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of years were eating all of those fish because of the phytoplankton. And the phytoplankton was there because of the micronutrients. So what we needed to do is we needed to find a way to put those micronutrients in, in a way that they would remain bioavailable. And if, if you think about it, if you were going to add iron to seawater, what's the first thing that happens to iron and salt in Manitoba? You get rust on your car is what kind of where I was going with that, right? It turns into rust, which is not really, it's not bioavailable and it sinks out of the ocean. Or sorry, it sinks out of the photosynthetic zone in the ocean. So what we were trying to do is figure out a way to deliver those micronutrients in a way that was bioavailable, but it didn't rust. It didn't, it, it, the environment wasn't making it unavailable. And we got great at growing vats of plankton in our lab. One of the Simon Fraser University biological profs dropped by our lab one day. We have a lab at Simon Fraser University. And he said, have you guys tried growing regular plants? And we went, why would we do that? We're trying to solve this problem. <laughs> right. Uh, and we started doing research trials with him. And, and then the rest is history. Like it worked fantastic. And we started really honing in on that, that other microbiome, which is the soil microbiome. When you introduce this to the soil, are you seeing a specific microbiome coming to life as a response to this particular stimuli in the soil, your product, or is it is it already there and it's just taking advantage of it? How does that work? That's a great question. We are not delivering microbes. We are enhancing the microbiome that already exists. And I think it's important to, to think about it like that because that microbiome is different in all the different parts of your field. It's a different microbiome at a hilltop than it is on a side hill than it is at a, in a depression. And those microbes, that, that biome has evolved in that location over thousands of years to be the biome that works the best in that location. So it's important to enhance that natural microbiome in that location in order to get the maximum impact on the crop that you want to grow. So what we are doing is we are feeding that biome and we're allowing that biome to decide which are going to be the uh, victors or you know the winners or the losers in that biome without outside interference. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in these trials with intent, which is, by the way, a brand new company to Canada, they've been in the U.S. for five years, but they got a brilliant setup for 
working with farmers, compensating with farmers, having a bit of a survey and peer group for farmers, doing trials for products from companies like yourself. And they have an agnostic data platform that lets any farmer input their data, whether it's John Deere or Trimble or, or whatever, Raven. All that data goes up to their platform. So they're getting really good results for you. You're seeing it in the yield. But my question is, are you able to measure the output or the response from the microbes? Like, is that relative to the, the efficacy conversation we're having about this fertilizer? And or are you able to measure the rate of release of these nutrients? I know you're measuring yield, mm -hmm. but are you able to put this stuff in the soil and say, hey, we're getting this amount of microbial activity from this genus and or we're measuring the re release of these micronutrients and wham, bam, thank you, man, we got some yield over here. Like, we got all those elements in there or some of them? That's a big question. Yeah, yeah. The answer in terms of the microbiome, like who's who in the neighborhood and, and, mm -hmm. and what's happening over time, we don't have that data yet. That is something that we're working on with a company called Trace Genomics. This fascinating company, and they have this huge data suite of, of soil genetic organisms. And so you send them a soil test and a sample, and they'll give you your regular soil test along with what the microbial is doing in terms of species diversity and abundance. So that's work that we're, that we're undergoing right now to better understand that. And I think we'll be able to use that data, not just in terms of our product, but in terms of how to match it with other products and try and find product combinations that optimize that sweet and abundance of microbes, which we expect will impact the plant's ability to maximize its genetics. What kind of results have you been seeing? And like, you've done a lot of previous trials. What, what, did, what did you see there? <laughs> Man, trials are awesome. <laughs> I got to do a plug actually for the Protein Industry Canada Supercluster and AGT Foods out of Regina. You know, without them, we wouldn't be here talking today. We were so fortunate to get working with AGT Foods in the Supercluster and they helped us scale up from where we were making a kilogram of material a day two years ago to now we're producing over a ton a day of material and we're getting, we're looking at building a bigger factory actually out in the prairies so that we can scale into industrial agriculture. Where I was going with that is not just the gratitude, which is good to have, but the <laughs> it's the field trials. I mean, over the last three years, we've run over 50, or, yeah, over 50 trials, but field trials specifically we've run, well, last year was 32, and this year is, I think, with 75 or so field trials because you need to know that it works right i mean you really need to know otherwise there's nothing that we we want more than than to have the actual real data for people to look at and say to make decisions based on data rather than you know whatever else you might sell something with so the results of those research trials have been fantastic we're seeing responses in broad acre crops from anywhere from like 5% improvement in yield to 12% to on average. And so when I say on average, that means, of course, in some cases it was worse, but in some cases it was way better. So we're trying to dial it in more to the way better side than the worst side to make sure that we figure out what those mechanisms are. 
even in vegetable crops, we tried tomatoes and, and potatoes and we did flowers. But even in those crops, it was uh, really fantastic, all double-digit yield increases. So we're looking at a number of different industries and, and product application methods, but there's nothing better than solid data to be able to tell this story. Man, it must be exciting for you coming back home to the prairies and you were recently on a tour 10 days of uh, looking at crops and talking to producers. I think you got a little bit of fishing in there too by the looks at your social media. Yeah, no doubt. At the end of the day. But what did you see? What was your big takeaways talking to producers this year with your trials? I mean, I think Eberhard Farms was one of them too. Would have been a fascinating trip. What did you learn? Yeah, it was more than 10 days. It was more like uh, 18 days. Mm. Prairies are big. Prairies yeah, are big. Yeah. I, th- I think people forget that. Again, like you said yeah. earlier, like the, the urban population just really doesn't get it. They, they, they really no don't. No idea scope. Yeah. The, the scope is massive. Well, we learned a lot of different things in terms of our product, but also in the needs of the growers and in the way that the, the market works, like how they buy their products and why they buy their products was really fascinating to learn these things. In terms of our product specifically, what we learned is that the material flows great through air seeders. And it also, when you bulk blend it, we had a couple guys bulk blend it. It worked fantastic from a bulk blending perspective. Didn't break down or anything like that. From a uh, growth perspective, it was early season, so it's hard to tell. However, in several crops, and you can check my social media on that, but we saw definite lines in the field where we were running strip trials. And for canola, for example, we're seeing a lot more flowers per plant. For lentils, we were, spe- we were seeing a lot of more nodulation, root nodulation in the lentils. In wheat, honestly, it was too early to tell. We couldn't really see a lot of difference. We also, we expect to see that on the load count. When, when it's harvested, and hopefully we get some good harvests. I know it's been a tough season in the prairies. Corn, we, we, corn is corn. It's hard to tell. <laughs> it grows so fast, man. Like you go out and one day, it's this, and then the next day, wow, it's just such an interesting crop. But soybeans, the other one, we definitely saw some lines where we saw improved root nodulation, bigger plants, and earlier flowering in some of the soybeans. So all very, very interesting information and good data. But the best part for sure was meeting the growers like, and having those conversations, like understanding how they, they see the inputs and how they see their, the importance of soil health and the, the importance of bottom line. That's a fascinating journey that you're on. And I'm happy for you that you're back in your wheelhouse with your, your native folk, solving problems in your, your own backyard where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of a startup three years old. Like it's crazy where you guys are at. You've had a lot of help. One of the things I think you're good at is is raising money, but you're getting there. And the odds of you surviving statistically from a zero start are extremely low. Yeah. Tell us about some of that journey you've had to navigate the highs and the lows. Honestly, just from my perspective, I don't want to talk for, for other people, but from my perspective, if I wasn't doing this for the specific reason of wanting to have a stake and a hand in the world that my children are going to grow up in, I wouldn't do it. It's hard work. It's <laughs> risky. There's a lot of nights when you're kind of laying on the couch at midnight in the office going, oh, how am I going to get everybody paid next week? Kind of that sort of anxiety, (laughs) which I'm sure most of your growers have gone through some of that as well. But it's difficult. But 
I can't say enough about choosing your team and getting the right people on board. It's so important to have the right people and the right support from your family all the way to your teammates that are helping you push this massive thing up a very steep cliff. The start is really difficult. So there's a lot of hard work that's involved. So having a great team and then really you just have to look at the data, listen to the data, see where it's pointing you and follow that path. And forgetting any of your predispositions or anything that you thought was, oh, I think it's going to go this way. Forget about it. Let the data drive the decision-making. You told me before the show your greatest virtue is leadership, but you're actually a senior bio-geoscientist by trade. Oh, yeah. But what's the distinction there? What does leadership really mean to you? I don't know that that's my greatest virtue, and I, maybe someone who says that probably <laughs> probably isn't. No, I thought it was sincere, though. I think you meant it, and I think you've heard that. It's choosing the team and enabling the team to do the best work and inspiring. You got, I mean, the captain of your team has to be the hardest worker, doesn't have to be the smartest, doesn't have to be the guy putting all the goals in the net or anything, but definitely has to be the hardest worker and the most honest. I think that really defines leadership here at uh, good old Lucent Biosciences. <laughs> good old. So what is the future trajectory? like? Are you building to sell? Or you, we already know you said you're building to change the world, but where do you see this percolating to? What's going to be the end result of all this? Well, there's a world of possibilities. We really started down this road to improve food security under what we know is the changing conditions in the world. And we took a look at how we might do that, and we, we chose fertility and specifically micronutrient fertility, because there's been no innovation in that space for a long, long time. It's been the same chemistry going into the ground, maybe with a different kind of coating or something like that, so that it doesn't leach as quickly or get into the groundwater as quickly, but there's been no real innovation in that space, and that's why we, we chose that space. And so our goal, our, what we really wanna do is we want to replace all of the the micronutrient industry with products that work and improve your soil health and cost less than the, what you're putting in your soil now. Hmm. I love it. Oh, that's really cool. I think we covered a lot of interesting ground. Do you have any kind of final thoughts or points that you'd like to make that we didn't cover yet? One thing that you mentioned that I want to say to other folks who are going through things like as a startup kind of thing, I think it's super important to get out there and talk about what you're doing. Get out there and meet people. Go on a show with Dan Aberhart and talk <laughs> about who you are, what, you, what you're trying to accomplish, where you come from. Because you don't know where these relationships are going to lead or where that goes. Uh, and I don't think, don't have fear of that. You have to do it. The opposite is that you, you're not successful. So Right. No, I appreciate that because I, I think that's part of the whole impetus of this show. I mean, leadership can be really lonely and being an entrepreneur can be really challenging, as we all know, as we as we share more, as we, as we go on, as we kind of evolve as a people. And yeah, I think that's the fun part of the, what the show is, is sharing some of the trials and tribulations and, and the wins and stuff like that. And I can Im only imagine three years of entrepreneurship from a zero to 60 start and where you guys are going, how big it's going to get. 
it's got to be just white knuckled ride. It's pretty exciting stuff. And this is an amazing space. Just to be clear, I mean, hell, every second breath we take, every second bite of food that we take is 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 due to the fantastic innovation that is the Haber-Bosch process. I mean, it's probably as fundamental to our modern civilization or more than oil. And very few people know about it. It's just now I think things are going to be coming into various uh, people's scopes in terms of be, being able to do better in the future. And this is part of the solution. Moving yeah. from a chemical-based production system augmented by by more sophisticated biological solutions that that do have less of a footprint and just frankly make common sense. Yeah. I think this makes a lot of common sense. That's on our research roadmap. Currently, we have a suite of micronutrients. We're moving into mesonutrients in the next two to three years, like your calcium, magnesium, sulfur. And then we'll be from there, we want to hit nitrogen. And we've already done preliminary research on that. What we think is going to be a biological carrier for nitrogen, a carbon-based wow. carrier for nitrogen that, again, has, that, has a similar uh, function where it's not leaching but yet still bioavailable. Really? You guys think you're going to be able to get there with nitrogen? We have done the homework in terms of literature. We have done the homework in terms of giving it a couple of goes. We think that we can do it, but it's going to take a lot of time, effort, and money. So we're currently focusing on the products that we know work and that we know are going to have an impact. But at the same time, our research team is continuing down that space to where we think that we can have a superior nitrogen product. Man, I'm just glad I knew you, know you, when you're on the show. <laughs> I'll be like, I know that guy, I knew that guy went, and you come on the show, and he was just getting started, and he's some big uh, fertilizer baron, yeah. some like skyscraper <laughs> guy, like making a presentation to other people in tuxedos or something. I hope I never am a skyscraper guy. <laughs> no desire for that. Or you'll be out there uh, digging in the dirt. Solving problems alongside farmers. That's, I mean, it's amazing. You, you sat at some kitchen tables again this summer, eh? And it's just, yeah, that's an honor. Yeah, it's just, it's a real privilege. And another just amazing thing about working in the agricultural industry is that people are genuine, generally fantastic. People are genuine, they care, and, and they care about not just the bottom line, but also the, the future generations of the, their children and the, the future landowners just a real privilege to work in that industry. Yeah, we won the lottery growing up where we did and yeah. being part of this business. And I, I don't know, it's very nice to have a purpose when you wake up in the morning knowing that what you're doing is is actually good. You don't have to like assuage any guilt about what you do in your day job, like Homer Simpson at the nuclear factory. Although people would probably argue nuclear energy is good, but anyways. That's a whole nother discussion. And <laughs> yeah. we could have that one too, if you want, some other time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting. I'm a huge fan of what's going on in the soil and all these new frontiers and fertility. Act. Well, it's the business we're in. And I'm really glad that we had this opportunity to work together. I'm, I just, I'm really excited for everything that you guys are doing. And I'm excited for producers to get their hands on this kind of stuff because I really do think it's going to help production. And, and for those producers that have got macros checked off, like, okay, I've got this problem handled and this is the way I'm dealing with that and I'm happy with this. These are the finer points of production that still matter even a difficult year like this in terms of fortifying the plant. And as this trickles down to nutrient density at the mm -hmm. consumer level, like we've talked about that a little bit, what you see, 
a lot of this is going to be driven by food processors, both <laughs> as an input and now as an output, right? Well, I think we didn't really touch on that yet. One of the things that we see from our research trials, and we've run over 5,000 tissue tests of like grains and, and final products from our trials, we're seeing a, a significant improvement in the micronutrient content of those crops that we're growing, but also other nutrients that we didn't put in. And you go, why would that be? Doesn't make sense, Jason. And, and then say, well, hold on a sec. We know that there's a lot of nutrients that are tied up in your soil. They're there when you do the soil test, but even still, you're adding them to your nutritional regime, like phosphorus, for example. So in our soil tests, we're seeing time and time again, elevated levels of phosphorus in the final product, and we're not adding phosphorus. And when I say elevated levels, I mean, as compared to the control or the untreated check which all have NPKs, of course, in, in the untreated check, but we sh yet we're still seeing a higher phosphorus content and higher other minerals like magnesium, for example, or what was the other? Boron. We didn't do any boron this year. And uh, we're seeing higher boron levels in final products. And where, where I think that's going to drive is, is the, it's going to change the taste and aroma of the final product, whether that's a bread or the tomato from your store. And I think that the, probably the, what we see in the future is that the consumers are going to start asking for those products. We want those products with the higher nutritional value, the higher nutritional content, which is going to drive in turn the food processors to look for those growers who have those sort of products and they will pay a premium for them. At least knock on wood, that's what I see happening. I think the public's appetite to pay for this kind of thing is, is almost limitless because it, as people become more aware of their health mm -hmm. and they recognize they can be fortified by these things of what they're eating, as population gets older and more sophisticated, more wealthy, it's going to be endless dollars for that that I'd like to see producers getting compensated for. Zinc globally is like the biggest deficiency in human beings. It's a yeah, big it's, deal. It's, it's massive. And that's, that's actually our number one product right now is zinc. But going back to it, like in addition to, to us delivering the product, we're also putting carbon back into the soil, which I think most inputs in the future are going to be carbon-based because we need to put that carbon back in the soil. And, and that's one of the places that we store our, our carbon. Like, and so if we can take globally this food processing byproduct, and turn it into a useful material that goes right back into the soil, which bolsters your soil carbon, improves your yield, and it doesn't cost you money. That's, I think, a huge win. And I think that consumers are going to be willing to pay for that. Do you guys have your eyes on the regulatory side in terms of your prospects for the future? In terms of registering the product or in terms of the, the impact of the carbon, the potential carbon industry or? Yeah, I was thinking more of the whole carrot and stick with the government talking about, we're talking about a 30% reduction in emissions related to fertilizer on the prairies already. Yeah, I don't know how you calculate that. I, I think there's still a lot to be figured out there. Like we've gone down the path of understanding what the carbon value is. Like our product, we believe, is a climate positive, climate positive product. B 
because we are actually sequestering carbon due to the addition of this product, where otherwise it would be going to a landfill or going into a cow or a dog and turned into CO2 and methane. Either way, it's a better place for it is back in the soil where it came from. It will eventually, in the soil, there, there is, it's not 100% sequestered, but it's partially sequestered. And even just figuring that out is an extremely difficult uh, proposition because again, it changes with your soil microme, which is different on your hilltop versus your hillside versus your bottom. It's a difficult prospect, but I think it can be done. And I think it can be regulatory driven or helped. I don't know. I think there's more to consider there. Another day, another show. But anyways, yeah. I appreciate what you're doing, man. I'm excited to work with you guys. Congratulations on all your success to date. I know it's been a lot of hard work to get here, and I'm excited to see what's what's going to come. If a producer is interested in learning more about your product and or they'd like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way is on our website, www.soilios.com. There's a ask me what you want. But, man, if you want, you can... Uh, check out my social media. I'm on all the social medias and it's all public. Anybody can DM me, direct message me. I'll answer yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> direct access to the next superstar in the fertility industry. I love it. It's good. Well, hey, man, thanks for everything you do. I appreciate the opportunity to work with you. I'm sure the listeners are going to be very interested in what you're doing and keep up the good work. I hope you get all the way up the food chain to uh, fertility food chain to nitrogen, man. That I didn't know you guys were working on nitrogen, but that's the big nut to crack. That'd be amazing. Well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity. The questions are fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and your listeners. Yeah, I'm sure those things that when I listen back to, I'll be like, oh man, I should ask this, but we'll talk again. I'm sure really you guys are just at the start. Hey, you're just yeah. starting really. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to be bake. We're going to be seeing some press releases as we go here. So fingers crossed. All the best, my man. Take care. I really appreciate right. you coming on the show. Cheers. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me know. I really appreciate it. If you want to connect with me and my brother, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can find Growing the Future Podcast on Instagram. But one of the really cool places to check out for past episodes and more content, different aspects of the show is growingthefuturepodcast.ca. And there you can become a Growing the Future Podcast insider. We will send you updates when the show is published immediately. And some of the other content that gets created around the show I usually publish a little blog about my takeaways on LinkedIn so you can connect with me there specifically about this episode and more. Uh, what else? Send us a note and I'll send you a t-shirt, man. Uh, send us your size. So we appreciate you following the show. Check out AberhardEggSolutions.ca. That's a company that Terry and I are partners in uh, distributing uh, some really cool products for agricultural inputs and you can check out aberhartfarms.com that's the farm you can check out suregrowsolutions.ca that's the agronomy and research company and there's also convergence growth but i don't know that they have a website yet uh will be coming shortly so yeah we're around and drop us a line appreciate you listening and take care